0: This is Daniel Fagella. You're listening to the AI and Business Podcast, and this is episode five in our five-part AI future series on generative AI and human reward systems. We started this series off getting pretty high level pretty fast. Our first guest, the head of AI at the United Nations, had given us kind of a preview into the future of generative AI, maybe turning into brain-computer interface pretty inevitably. We've covered AI ethics We've covered the addictiveness of generative AI and ways that it also might be made to support us and not just addict us in a bad way. We end this series on a little bit more of a business value note. So we are still talking about the future, but we're grounding it in what we can do about these crazy futures today in running our own companies. Our guest is somebody that you will probably know by name, and that is Tom Davenport. Tom is a professor or lecturer at a number of universities, including Babson, MIT, and Oxford. Tom became a household name, at least for those of us working in tech in the era of big data and analytics, and in the last number of years has covered more and more of the business applications of artificial intelligence. In this episode, Tom discusses some specific applications of generative AI that he's observing today and some of the forces that are making adoption of these technologies mandatory. He talks about the general shift from being a creator to being an editor. And that sounds like it's just for people creating images or text, but it's much more complicated than that. And Tom paints a pretty compelling vision. And in the very end of this episode, we wrap up with some direct advice for senior leadership, who's thinking about how to make the most of this technology without incurring undue legal risk. And Tom has some great nutshelled insights about what leaders should be doing today. So we do stretch things pretty far into the future, Tom and I discussed some timelines that he probably doesn't explore on an everyday basis, but was a lot of fun to unpack with him. And we end with some great nuggets that I hope are useful for you, the listener. So thank you so much for tuning in. This is episode five of five, and we have Tom Davenport here with us on the AI in Business podcast. So, Tom, welcome to the program.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes, I've, I've only... Experienced you through the written word. And so this is finally the opportunity to get to pick your brain with your voice here. We're talking about generative AI. You recently wrote a piece on Harvard Business Review on this topic. I want to start with where you think we're headed in terms of the big picture of the future of work. What do you think leaders need to know about how work is changing? They've seen, oh, AI might write some of my code. But what does this really mean? Anything you want leaders to know?
1: Well, I think we need to prepare for a future of work in which almost everybody has. AI, generative AI in particular, as sort of the day-to-day co-pilot. And this is not really the future of work. For a lot of people, it's the present of work. So I published a co-authored book in November, I think, called Working with AI. And it was 29 case studies of people who were already working day-to-day with some form of AI, not so much generative because it wasn't as popular as it yep. is now. but And it's working very well, and my general feeling is the only people who are going to lose their jobs to AI are those who refuse to work with AI regardless of that particular profession or job.
0: Well, I'm with you there. So the high-level trend, and, and I think it'd be very hard for anybody to listen to this show for a long period of time and have any other opinion, if you chafe at the very idea of leveraging AI in your workflows, probably the way of the dinosaurs is the way for you. There's very few ways around that. Unless you're a plumber, you probably don't have, you know, even a plumber, I don't know if they have 20 years, but they they probably have five or 10, I think, at least for now. But so, okay. So, you know, adoption is pretty much going to be par for the course. You're going to lose your job to somebody who's using AI. The generative stuff is this newer wave that, you know, we've, we've seen sort of run amok here with chat GPT, there's been dalle 2 on the image side. We've got a number of these OpenAI folks on to talk about this co-pilot idea you're mentioning. What are some of these areas where, you know, you, you teed it up well, this co-pilot dynamic is going to be the norm. What are some of those that you think are important to point out, maybe ones people aren't thinking about?
1: Well, you know, I think there are so many people who work with some sort of text or image creation. Some people who do it, just occasionally, I guess, even for random emails, I think it would be a good idea to have ChatGPT or GPT-3 or whatever your, your tool of choice is sort of prepare that email. And you know maybe it's something you didn't think of. Or you know, I was talking with someone yesterday, because all my conversations now are about ChatGPT. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, someone yesterday about doing thank you notes Someone else said it was really good for writing letters to people whose loved ones had died. So that sort of suggests it's already penetrating into not just work life, but social life. But, I, you know, I think we'll all have to become editors rather than creators of first drafts. And that's a particular skill that I think, you know, in... Journalism and so on, editor skills are a little bit different from the people who write the news stories. And with generative AI, I think it will be even more different. We'll have to check for accuracy, at least right now. You know, these systems are often not that factually accurate. And is it boring? Is it commonplace? You know, these systems are trained on stuff that's pretty boring and commonplace, a lot of it. So we might have to liven it up some but those are editing skills, not first draft skills. The, I think the the age of the essay in school and in work and publishing is pretty much over.
0: Yeah, well, I certainly have a take here, but I'd love yours. I think there are many people right now loudly lamenting that, as I'm sure you're well aware. And now I could make analogies to everything else that's been lamented from, you know, Written text, you know, and Socrates all the way up to, you know, the typewriter and whatever else. But I, you know, some people make a pretty compelling case that, you know, if we we don't have to compose our thoughts at all, there are some potential downsides there. This shift from sort of creator to editor, as you had mentioned, it's a bit of a different skill set. Do you think that's a transition everybody's going to be ready to make? Or do you see a lot of people sort of not being the kind of person or with the right kind of skills to play this? editor to an AI role.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that those of us who thought we were pretty good at the creation of text or images are going to have a really tough time with it. And you hear authors complaining about it, journalists to some degree. I'm sure the artists will be the last group to really go along with this. Um, And many of them have objected strongly to, you know, that art prize being won at the Colorado State Fair yeah. and ver- various other domains. So yeah, I think they will be the last to get with a program. And the people who will like it will be much larger, I think, those who don't have a huge talent for those kinds of things who now have an entry into those areas.
0: Yeah, I got to agree with you. And I think the, the possibilities it opens up are, are pretty gigantic. You looked at a few pieces in the HBR article, people talk about the writing of code, you know, I have a friend who works for kind of a sister company uh, or a company that was bought by Salesforce, who's building business intelligence dashboards with his first step being a series of prompts and requirements into GPT. And that's like 85% of the work is what he's told me this kind of got down to in terms of engineering prompts, etc. So there's the code side of things. There's the written text, you know, you're in the business of writing books, at least part of what you do. So there's there's that, there's articles there's social content. What are the other kinds of business functions where you see the co-pilot role really being important? And, and people should see that. Maybe they look at their job and they say, or, or their department, and they say, well, we're not writing a lot of articles. Or we're not making a lot of images. So I'm not really sure where this would fit in. What else should people know?
1: Well, certainly for attorneys, I think it'll be quite revolutionary to generate briefs and so on with these tools. And they'll have to figure out how to still charge for it by the hour, (laughs) but it'll make them much more productive. I think that we will see product designers being forced to use it. And you've already seen some of that. I saw a great image in a car magazine of the SUV Corvette, which was created by, I think, Mid Journey or something like that. And it looked fantastic. And that's going to save somebody a lot of time in, in designing a car. And I, you know, it's interesting. We had generative AI before this latest phenomenon in architecture, generative architecture, it was called generative design. And so it's a little different. It's not, doesn't work in the same machine learning oriented way. It's more optimization oriented, but I think eventually, I think that will some combination of the, of the two types of, of generative will take over architectural design. Some people say that it will have a negative impact on lobbying because everybody will send all these fake letters to their Congress people and so on. Not sure. My wife used to work for a senator. She says people don't pay that much attention to well, those anyway. <laughs> Maybe they count them, but they can still count them pretty easily. So I think that it's almost an unheard of number of areas where even, you know, medicine doctors always have to do clinical notes and heretofore they've largely sort of dictated them. And now there's speech to text conversion, but I think it'll get generated automatically from your electronic medical record.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's companies like Nuance that have built multi-billion dollar businesses doing that, right? We do some work with those guys in a whole bunch of different areas of medical and Yeah, wonder if instead of taking a second and recording in an audio device after the session, might we be able to protect privacy, but also just tune into a whole conversation, drink in that context as some of these tools are getting better and better at doing, and score and code things the way it needs to, maybe fill in the blanks afterwards. I mean, I think you're bringing up a good point there. You brought up something really at the beginning here around sort of you're going to lose your job to somebody who's using AI. The people that are going to lose their jobs are going to be people who refuse to use it. I think there's a really important point around kind of the the compulsion for use. And I don't mean that in a bad, malicious way. I just mean, Tom, if if I decided, you know, at some point I would never want to use a laptop, I certainly wouldn't be running a business right now. Probably there'd be a, a lot of things you wouldn't be able to do all that well if you had to typewriter everything you're up to. Really setting your foot down and, and not using the par for the course tools for performance, for me it seems like If every other designer is able to come up with way more ideas and frankly better ideas because they're starting with and iterating with AI, you have to do it to compete. Salespeople, if you're getting prompts for your scripts or you're getting prompts for your emails or automating some of your emails, other people, you know, and, and, you know, if you're not doing that, your colleagues are, you're going to have to jump on board. I've got to stretch us into the future. So I'm going to put this on the table. See if you have a take. I know you as a business guy, we're painting a broader brush for the future for the folks listening in at home. Is there also a compulsion? On the personal side, I'll tell you what I mean by that. When AI gets the job done better for writing code, you will have to do it, period. You'll have to do it if you want to write code. Same thing with designing products, etc. You and I are on the same page. What about when generative AI experiences 100% of the time are more relaxing than walking in the woods? Maybe we are standing up with a VR headset, but it's always more relaxing, hyper-customized, hyper-personalized stuff. Same thing with maybe feeling a sense of possibility or confidence before a sales call if there's a way to generate that better than whatever YouTube Tony Robbins video, something hyper-calibrated just to us as an individual user, to our mood that day, to what hyped us up well in the past, generated, conjured specifically for us, entertainment, a movie made just for me about the French Revolution through the eyes of Saint-Just instead of looking at it through Robespierre. Do you think that there will be a similar compulsion to adoption on the personal side? I do. And somebody was
1: telling me for example, about they they now have these huge screens. I forget they use, I have a word for them that they use for filming television and movies. And they're replacing, they're, and they do generative AI of images and they're going to replace backdrops. So you could certainly afford to create a personalized movie for someone. And a personalized novel would be, I think you could almost do that today. Yeah. So... You know, I worry a little bit, you know, we've seen a fair amount of that with social media and the whole filter bubble idea that we only see things that we agree with and that we yes. want to see and that yes. could get even more, become even more of an issue as these experiences become even more compelling.
0: I think there's an accurate point there and the, the sort of the audience of one dynamic is sort of what we potentially foresee happening. Why would I watch the same White Lotus TV show that you watched when in 10 years, I will have a show generated for me that's way more compelling and interesting, hyper calibrated to everything I'm interested in. I'll just never go back to analog media, just like the salesperson will never go back to not having AI write their follow-up emails, because it gets them more sales. So there is this notion that we are entering these individual universes where these echo chambers could become more resonant. I will say you and I, Tom, today, We live lives that if your grandparents had heard them described 80 years ago, they would say it's some kind of hell. We're looking at screens for 16 hours a day, Tom. Give me a break. People are meeting their spouses by swiping on their phones. This is clearly a hellish world. But as it turns out, it feels kind of normal. Do you think there's a shot that between work and personal life, total immersion in experiences that are productive with generative AI and experiences that are renewing, entertaining, educative with generative AI could just be the norm we're walking into in in the coming 10 years.
1: Yeah, I mean, one could certainly argue that generative AI is the perfect tool for a much more compelling metaverse than we've seen thus far. And who knows? I mean, there could be a backlash to it, as you were talking about the White Lotus, but I enjoyed talking about crazy things Jennifer Coolidge did in The White Lotus yes. with my friends. Yes, and there's, my the and so there's the social element. There's the social element, for sure. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. And there, you know, there was, I forget his name, there was a fortune article, a fortune writer who wrote a book a number of years ago suggesting that human creations, purely human creations would be valued simply because they're human. And that may be true. I haven't seen a whole lot of evidence of that thus yeah, far, but yeah. you know, that, that art and music and literature would be valued just because we knew that it was 100% human created.
0: I feel like that's a status flex. So status has gone through some phases. Back in the day, we, we wore gold on all of our fingers because there were no banks. And so you just had a bunch of camels. You wore a lot of gold. Then we had a, you know, a Matisse hanging in our foyer. And then at some point, we had a $2 million monkey JPEG for our Twitter icon. Maybe in the future, that's going to translate to, oh, this is a painting that some member of Homo sapiens sort of actually put together from scratch. <laughs> How very quaint. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? It seems to me like you brought up our last point I'll bring up, and then we're going to talk about the futures you're ex, you're, you kind of hope we avoid and the futures you want us to move towards. We'll end on a positive note. But one other thing I'll kind of put on the table you mentioned this idea of liking to talk about the White Lotus show with your kind of friends and and family. We almost see a world, and I don't know if you disagree, where the number of things with which would have value in kind of that shared social context may shrink as more and more of what you could experience could be massively hyper-personalized to you explicitly. Where the, the, you know, right now it's many things. Everything I watch for sports, somebody else is watching. Every TV show, every YouTube video, every tweet somebody else is reading. It's, it's totally normal. Everything I look at in nature, somebody else can see. They can see that beautiful tree that starts to bloom in Boston at this time of year, whatever the case may be. In the future, I might walk around outside, but with AR, I'll have a generative sky, Tom, that'll be purple. And there might be a dragon flying in the background. It'll be exactly what, what relaxes me. Exactly what makes me feel happy. And then I won't have as much to talk about with other people. Do you see there being, as we move into the things to watch out for, a danger in that shrinking of a shared subjective world?
1: It could well be. I mean, you know, if you read Ready Player One, it's sort of a good example of, of that sort of purely virtual. Uh, people seem to lose all interest in everything else because the amount of dopamine being. Yeah injected into your brain is so great. So yeah, it could get a little depressing, could be a bit of a backlash to it at some point. Although, you know, we haven't, as you suggest, we haven't really seen that in terms of screens today. No. People like looking at, their, looking at their screens, so.
0: Yeah, it seems like the norms will shift And Some people have had really particular objections. It sounds like for you, it's like, oh, we might just go there, <laughs> that might be where we're headed. Well, I, you know,
1: I, in a way, I think resistance is futile. <laughs> this technology is here to stay. It'd be like saying, "Okay, we're gonna all go back to doing our own long
0: division and throw away all our calculators." This is not gonna, not gonna happen. I think the consequences start to get really spooky, Tom, because I think if you extrapolate that, and maybe you don't, maybe there will be a line you'll draw before we get into our next question. But if you extrapolate that, we could imagine that I might have a teacher. Let's say I'm learning the Greek language, which I am now at like a five-year-old child level. A teacher that can teach me a language or or maybe a skill for writing code or whatever it is, who is just astronomically better than any human teacher. Maybe even a friend who I could talk to about an emotional breakup or about some business plans who would be unbearably wise in terms of their suggestions and knowing my flaws and knowing where I'm headed we might even think about that eventually extrapolating, maybe it's 15 years out into the romantic domain. And, and now things start to get to the point where it's not like, yep, I watched my AI generated movie, life is still normal. Now it's not. Now we're walking into the programmatically generated everything sort of universe where we're kind of embracing a, a, a real benefit from just hyper personalization kind of isolation. Do you not see that on the horizon? I'm not even saying it's a bad thing, but I'd love yeah. your take.
1: So, we'll, we'll be marrying our artificially generated spouses and, and so on, who are better for us than any human spouse could ever be designed. It's laughable, but I, I hate yeah. to say, yes, I am putting yeah. that on the table. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I I, I don't know, but I wrote a, an article recently about personalization. And I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to call this hyper personalization. Because we've been talking about one to one marketing for 20 or 30 years, and we haven't really gotten much better at it. I mean, the vast majority of stuff that I get in terms of ads and offers and so on is not tailored to my needs at all. In fact, I said once I got, I think, a Groupon offer for a restaurant I really wanted to go to, and it almost brought a tear to my eye. It was such a rare experience. (laughs) So maybe it will just be too logistically challenging to create all of these highly personalized experiences for everyone. I don't know, but it seems like it would be pretty seductive if we were able to
0: do it. I I think there's a seductive pull towards us living in a husk where we're in some permanently reclined state, getting piped in whatever qualia is most entertaining, most productive, most whatever. I wonder if there's anything stopping that train right now, Tom, to be honest. I think people thought, go. I remember giving a TEDx and, and saying, you know, well, we don't know the timelines on Go and it was like eight months later or something like that, you know? So some of this stuff is easier or harder than we think. We'll get a little bit into, you know, I'm not here to paint a dystopia, but I think there are some directions this tech could go where maybe they wouldn't be very productive for for businesses. You know, you're a guy that people take business advice quite seriously from in the analytics and AI space. When you think about how this tech, not adopting is bad, you made that clear. Are there any other permutations of where this could steer the job market individual roles that you think might hurt adopting companies more than help them anything you want people to kind of watch out for?
1: Well, it's interesting. I was talking about this with a friend who yesterday who is a marketer for a financial services wealth management firm and he said, "Yeah, you know, we tried all that stuff out, but we just think the legal risks are too great for us to use it other than totally experimentally so you know we could get in some big intellectual property lawsuit morass with all of this because you know it is trained on existing content and there's we've seen a little bit of that copilot um github is being sued already and i think Getty Images is
0: suing somebody already. So it could really mushroom. Feels like the death throes for Getty Images, I'm not going to lie. Nothing but love for those guys. But man, that's going to be a tough game. I think they might have a bastion of like 1940s photos of US presidents or something, you know, like specific events or something like that. But even that feels like they're on the wire. But I guess you're bringing up a valid point here that, hey, before we throw ourselves at this, let's think about where we are finance, healthcare, et cetera. Are there real snafus around how this is being trained and the bite back from the legal that we need to put our brains on before we dive in?
1: Yeah, I think any organization should be experimenting at least aggressively with this stuff. But I would also be
0: thinking about the governance and the legal side of it at the same time. Yeah. Okay. So there could be some potential downsides, I guess, on that front. Anything else in terms of, you know, this could be personal or business, places where you see this stuff steering that might be, you know, less than ideal? You brought up an interesting point around the echo chamber idea. Is that something you've given some thought to or you think there might be some pitfalls with there? Well, you know,
1: we've been talking about it in social media for quite a while. We haven't done anything about it. So I don't see, it's hard to legislate against that at all. And I I don't see meaningful legislation in the US about generative. AI in you know my lifetime.
0: Interesting. You know, you bring up a good point. I'm with you. We hear about echo chambers all the time. I guess thinking about it, we really haven't, have we, Tom? Huh? In terms of it being any different than it was. Maybe people sort of want it, and that's the reason why it's challenging. It's like people step into a world, and they want it to be something that really deeply resonates with them. And if that's what makes them angry, if that's what makes them happy, they're going to only want to see that. And it almost feels like that's going to be tough to do.
1: Yeah, there are some, you know, online journalism offerings that will give you a lot of different sides of an issue and so on, but I don't see them really prospering that much.
0: We're a tribal species, Tom, and I don't know if there's anything <laughs> to do about that. So it appears. Yeah. Yes, yes. So hominids have always been. All right, well, we'll talk a little bit about the upside, things that maybe you're excited about in terms of where we can move with this stuff. You had mentioned companies could and should potentially be experimenting with this technology already, even if they're not doing it publicly in a way that's going to be legally risky, they should be experimenting. Anything that you would say would be other smart moves for leadership? They're asking where might this stuff apply. Anything else you want to share with that crowd?
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that I think is, is so far largely under-explored is the whole idea of, you know, fine-tune training of these models on your own organizations content. And what I talked about this a little bit in the HBR article It's still early days, but Morgan Stanley was telling me how they were experimenting with putting all of their wealth management advice and their life event advice and so on into GPT-3. And this was pre-chat GPT and using it as kind of a knowledge management tool so that advisors, financial advisors, and maybe even Clients directly could have access to it just with a with a prompt of some sort. So, as I was a knowledge management guy before, I was a data and yep. big data and analytics and AI guy. So, I, I would be quite excited about that knowledge management. It's kind of died out a bit, so this could really rekindle it, I think. And you imagine a law firm, you know, t- doing fine-tuned training of all of their documents that would make it hugely productive or a company doing that for customer service purposes, I think, with all of the technical manuals that they have. So I think there's lots of potential there that is just, you know, we're just scratching the surface on.
0: This is a great point. You're bringing up something I think a lot of our listeners might want to go under the hood on, which is think not only of what can this tech do out of the box, but do we have corpuses of data particular to our business? that really could take things to another level, whether it's visual design, text, et cetera, where we could have kind of our own ecosystem. We had the CTO of Ageron not that long ago talk about CarMax. CarMax has a lot of descriptions of cars. So they can feed it an image and a couple specs and it can write a beautiful description of a car because that's unique data that they have. Where is that in your business? I think actually it's good to prompt people to think about that. And I wonder, you know, you've brought up a few examples that have got my head spinning here, Tom. One is the legal example. So being able to sort of, compose our legal rebuttals or our case based on previous cases, you brought up the sending letters to senators, you brought up the customer service use case. Tell me if this sounds crazy, but I'm almost wondering how we get out of this world. I imagine a world where if I have a customer service issue, there's nothing I hate more than being on the phone and sitting there and waiting. If I could prompt, this is what I need done, I need to cancel this, do this, and have a, either a voice or a chat system go get that job done. Somebody else is going to have a chat system responding to me. I almost imagine a world where as a lawyer, as a senator, as a user who has companies that I need to do customer service with, I'm actually just sending my bots out to talk to theirs. And then I'm looking at a dashboard of what the results were. Is that too far out or are there areas where you potentially see that happening?
1: Well, you know, again, we've been saying that chatbots and automated customer service was going to be good for a long time. Yeah. Not yet, but I do think this has enormous potential for being the thing that really brings that about. And, you know, it maybe none of us have to talk to anybody anymore. It's just have your AI call my AI. You know?
0: <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. I, I, uh, That makes me think about my future as a podcaster here, Tom, to be honest with you. Is there a time where I send you an email and you say, yeah, have my bot talk to your bot? And we just have a great conversation. We never know anything about it. Any closing notes that you would give to leadership? You've given them the idea of sort of thinking about the value of their own corpus of data, being adamant about experimenting, but also being careful about legal. Any other passing thoughts? You know, having seen so many technology trends and waves come through your career, Anything else you'd want people to keep their their eyes and ears kind of peeled for?
1: Well, I'm a sociologist, and so I think I'm always interested in what's the impact on people. And so, if I were running a company, I'd say to everybody in my organization, look, you know, this is a really amazing tool, and we're not sure exactly what's going to happen to the workforce, but we're pretty confident that the people who know how to use this best are the ones who are going to thrive in our employment and. You might want to put yourself in that category, and you know establish communities, establish little courses, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you don't need a lot to learn how to write good prompts, but some instruction would probably be useful, and I think every company ought to be putting those things in place.
0: Ah, uh, so figuring out is Sally figuring out a great way to use this for you know LinkedIn marketing? is Jeffrey finding a great way to handle customer service with certain use cases. And can we get a playbook? Can we train teams? Can we share ideas and make that a conscious effort? It sounds like is what you're you're going at.
1: Yeah. And, you know, one thing that's uh, very interesting, I wrote a book a number of years ago called Only Humans Need Apply. And my co-author, Julie Kirby, had this idea of pretty soon we'll all be bringing our robot to work in a way. You know, maybe we'll all have our own personal generative AI system that we bring to work with us and you know, increase our productivity and, and effectiveness enormously.
0: I I actually think that that's a really nice high note to sort of wrap up on, because I, I think that's a positive vision. I think what a lot of people are fearful of, Tom, is that we're going to be run by generative AI systems that have the goal of selling e-commerce products, that have the goal of capturing our attention and robbing us of sleep. And I'm not blaming any tech companies. I'm just saying business is business. But this idea of having our own AI could be cool. I am grateful, Tom, that I got to talk to you before that era, because instead of talking to your bot, I talked to you. And I'm grateful to our listeners for tuning in. Maybe at some point, you'll get the paragraph version of this interview. But for right now, you listen to me and Tom. We've taken the time to hopefully share some useful stuff with you. So thank you for tuning in. And Tom, I know that's all we have for Tom. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Daniel. It was great. Really enjoyed it.
0: So that's all for this episode of the AI in Business podcast. A big thank you to Tom for being able to be with us. Thank you to you for tuning in all the way through to the end of this episode. And we've just wrapped up our fifth of five episodes about generative AI and human reward systems. I hope that this was useful for you. We plan on doing more AI futures series. I believe that these topics are incredibly important to unpack with different kinds of people, with different kinds of backgrounds. And we had a really all-star group be able to present for you in this particular series. If you want to see our infographics on where generative AI is taking business and the human condition, check out emerj.com. That's Emerge, emerj.com slash reward. That's where you can see the embedded quotes from all of our best speakers in this series. You can find some of their finest insights put in context with some of our research and thinking here at Emerge, in addition to the infographics around where we see generative AI taking people. Again, that's emerj.com slash reward. I'm also gonna be posting about Tom's episode on LinkedIn. I've been posting about every single episode in this series. We've had so many good takeaways from all of them. Feel free to join me on LinkedIn. It's just Dan Fagella on LinkedIn. I've always got comments or inbound in-mail requests from various folks that listen from around the world, and your ideas are part of what fuel what we're going to cover the next time we do an AI future series. So I appreciate your perspective. Feel free to join me on social. Otherwise, I sincerely appreciate you rolling with me. I love this episode with Tom. I'm really glad to be able to go on these journeys with you guys and move a little bit farther into the future. And I'm glad we were able to get it done this month. So thanks again so much. I'll catch you in the next episode. here on the AI in Business podcast.